Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. My name is Chad. I'm senior pastor here. It's good to have you with us. If you will, turn to Psalm 119. We're going to look expressly at verse 25 to 32, which is Dalit. You've seen Aleph, Bet, Gimel, and now Dalit. In other words, Psalm 119 is ordered according to the Hebrew alphabet, and we're on the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet in this psalm. Each of these sections arranged around the letters of that alphabet. So let's look at Psalm 119 and verse 25. Follow along with me as I read. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this for what it is, the word of the Lord. That we would hear what your spirit has superintended in this song through your servant for the sake of your church in every age. That we would join in this prayer, this song of lament. That we would be a people who lament our sin and misery. That we would do so with godliness which is the gift of grace. We pray you'd help us to understand your word and receive it with joy to be those who are not merely hearers of the word, but doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a culture, as I've said on more than one occasion, we live in a culture that really wants almost nothing to do with lament. We used to have our churches and cemeteries right together. And we did so, you had the graveyard and you saw your end as you walked into church. And you knew what you were there for. Now we put those cemeteries as far out of sight as we can. And we come to church hoping to think about anything but our end. Carl Truman, one of my friends and now a fairly significant public intellectual, riffing on Philip Reef, said this, In past times, people did not go to church to be made happy. They went to have their misery explained to them. But now we want to be made happy and we find ways to anesthetize our misery so we don't have to think about it we don't have to know about it we don't have to face it so what does it mean to lament well to lament is to express sorrow or regret or discouragement and we have a psalter filled with lament the psalms there's lament all throughout we have a whole book called lamentations it's a book on lament one of the historic catechisms of the protestant church the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, and it's the second question. The first question of the Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And then it goes on to say that my life is not my own, but I belong body and soul to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it goes on to explain that. But listen to question two. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? See, the comfort that you are the Lord's, the only comfort in life and death that I belong to the Lord. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer they give is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. You guys picking up a theme? And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. 
In other words, the Christian faith is one that recognizes fundamentally that our sin has brought about a miserable condition and that our only hope in our misery and sin is found in the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we hate to face this reality. We want to hide from it. When someone says something like this to us, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. We want to end their suffering right there. But that's a psalmist. When folks lie on a bed of tears, we want to find a way to get a smile out of them. We desperately long for a seasonable word that will lift them from the pit. Personally, I grow deeply impatient with suffering. It's not so much that I become impatient with the person's suffering, but I become impatient with my inability to save them from such suffering. I want to save people from any and all pain, and I'm sure that you are just like me in that. I am jealous for the good of my family and the good of Christ's church, I feel often like one of the sons of thunder who just wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume the adversaries. I want to call down fire to consume Satan and sin and death. There is a part of that that's good and right. There's also a part of that which is a failure to trust the Lord. And I'm sure most of you are like me in this. Whenever we see those we love suffering, we become impatient with God's wise providence in those particular circumstances. There are three errors about lament that we tend to believe. I want to give you these three errors briefly that we tend to believe. One, we tend to believe that lament is a lack of faith. That's an error. That lament, to lament, is some kind of lack of faith. Lament is not a lack of faith, though lament can be a lack of faith. But it can also be filled with faith. Think of Job. Though he slay me, in him will I trust. Lament without faith would be, though he slay me, full stop. Lament with faith, though he slay me, in him will I trust. Or think of the Lord Jesus on the night when he's betrayed. Look with me, if you will. Keep your hand in Psalm 119 and look over at Matthew 26. Let's think of the Lord Jesus on the night he's betrayed. Matthew chapter 26 and go down to verse 36. Let's see, faith-filled lament. Matthew 26 and verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Notice that the Lord Jesus was sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. That's lamentation. That's lament. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here is faith-filled lament. I am very sorrowful. I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath for the sake of the sins of the people, because I understand what facing your wrath looks like. I'm troubled, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I trust you. I trust you. Second error we tend to make is we tend to think I can and should save people from their lament. I can 
and should save people from their lament. When Judas came with soldiers in betrayal of Jesus, you guys remember the scene, Judas comes with soldiers in betrayal of Jesus, Peter grabbed his sword and attacked one of them, cut off his ear. What was the response of Christ? Look down, Matthew 26 and verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, that one we learn in John is Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? Listen, there's a purpose to this that Peter can't possibly understand. Jesus knew that the Father had decreed that he would be betrayed and turned over to the Roman soldiers and crucified for our sins. Jesus had come to drink of the cup of the Father's wrath for our sin, and he knew it. But Peter, who just before would not stay awake to pray, remember that? Would not stay awake to pray, now wants to take matters into his own hands. In other words, Peter did not want to leave matters in the hands of the Lord, By praying, Peter wanted to take matters into his own hands by force. But we need to put our troubles and the troubles of our loved ones into the Lord's hands. Our third error in the midst of these kinds of things is to believe that our biggest problem is our external circumstances. Our biggest problem is our external circumstances. That's an error. Here's what our biggest problem is. Our own sin. It's our own sin. David understood this. If you remember the story of Bathsheba, David as the king, who appeared to be quite a godly king, who was doing everything we would hope a king would do, stays behind from the war, first error. Then David goes up onto the rooftop, seemingly to spy on women, sees Bathsheba in her nakedness, and calls her over and takes advantage of her and impregnates her, and then realizes what he's done against Uriah, a loyal soldier of his own, and brings Uriah in and puts him at the front lines of a battle and has him killed. So David had sinned against Uriah, a loyal servant and friend, having him killed, sinned against Bathsheba, taking advantage of a married woman and impregnating her, sinned against the people of Israel by not properly leading them as their king, but sinning against God's law, sinned against his current wife, by cheating on her. And above all, he sinned against the Lord. Nathan comes to him, if you remember, the prophet, and tells him that the Lord would take his child due to his sin. Now, there's a lot more to that story than what I'm telling you, but the Lord tells him that the child that he has with Bathsheba will be taken due to his sin. Let's look at his response. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan has just come in and confronted him for his sin with Bathsheba. And here's what we hear in 2 Samuel 12 and the second part of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. You may know what this kind of lament looks like. You can't do almost anything but lay on the ground and cry out to the Lord. You can't eat. You can't get up. You just won't. On the seventh day, the child died. 
And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. When he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In the middle of that, he sung a psalm, a psalm we all know. Turn to Psalm 51. You've likely heard this psalm. If you look at the superscript you have above that psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David, that's part of the original text. It tells you when he sang this psalm, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. That's the chapter I was just reading to you from. What psalm does he sing in worship to the Lord? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Think of the judgment he just faced when he praised this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." David knew, even in the face of his own son being taken as judgment for his sin, that his greatest need was forgiveness for his own sins. So he confessed his sin and worshiped the Lord. That's godly lament. We see it in David, the king who pictured the coming Christ, and we see it above all in Jesus, our Savior. And I suppose what I want us to understand today is that we cannot lament in a godly manner without God's grace. 
We cannot lament in a godly manner without God's grace. We need God's grace. We need God's grace for lament, and we need God's grace for godliness. That's precisely what I want to address as we walk through the psalm this morning. We will look at a prayer for grace for godly lament. The psalmist is asking for grace for godly lament. That's what he's asking for. First, we're going to look at grace for putting off sin in lament. Verses 25 through 29, we're really focused on the fact that we need grace so that we might put off sin in the midst of lament. The second point we're going to look at is that we need grace for putting on godliness in lament in verses 30 through 32. Follow what I'm saying. We have to put off sin in the midst of lament, verses 25 to 29, and put on godliness in the midst of lament, verses 30 through 32. And we can't do either of those things without God's grace. So let's look first at grace for putting off sin in lament. Look at Psalm 119 and verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. To cling or to cleave in some translations is to adhere closely to. The idea here is that he's laying prostrate in the dust and in some sense he's eating the dust. We'll see this kind of language even in, for example, Lamentations 3 where the person laying prostrate in the dust, clinging to the dust, is even eating the dust. What he's saying is this. I feel like I'm utterly defeated. I'm going about on my belly eating the dust like the defeated foe, like the serpent in Genesis 3.14. I feel like I'm entombed, like darkness is all I can see. We can see similarly strong emotive language in verse 28. Look at verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. The King James Version says my soul melts for heaviness. You guys know that sense of sorrow or heaviness. I'm just weighed down by sorrow and lament. I feel defeated. The NASB says, my soul weeps because of grief. Another way to translate that. I just can't get off of the ground lamenting. I can just see darkness all around. In other words, I am crushed. I am crushed under the burden and weight of suffering and sin crushed under it. My suffering and my sin has deadened and distressed my soul. The opposition to me from outside circumstances and the opposition to me from sin within me are too much for me. This is the heart of a man who is wrecked by both external opposition and by his own sin and weakness. David is spiritually distraught. He is distraught over his physical and spiritual peril. David did not try to press down his distress. He didn't try to pretend it doesn't exist. Rather, he poured out his heart to the Lord. But I want you to hear this. David did not think, and Sovereign Grace, please hear this. David did not think that his greatest problem in his suffering was the opposition shown to him by external circumstances. He thought his greatest problem was his own heart. We can see that in the way he prays. And what I want to do is look at David's request for God's grace and lamentation to put off sin and lamentation. And we'll notice he essentially prays in a kind of five-parted prayer, but I'll just walk through these five, we'll call them five prayer requests that David makes really briefly. His first prayer is this. He prays in lamentation that the Lord would revive him spiritually. Look at Psalm 119.25, the second part. 
Give me life according to your word. That can be translated, revive me according to your word. He's asking for the Lord to revive him, to quicken his heart. His first prayer in lamentation is that the Lord would graciously enliven his soul. He's melting under the power of sorrow and needs the Lord to strengthen him, to awaken him, to enliven him, to revive him. He wants the Lord to graciously restore unto him the joy of his salvation, to cause him to rejoice always, to cause him to be thankful in all circumstances, to cause him to pray without ceasing. Now, one would think that the first thing he would ask for is comfort or relief. My soul clings to the dust. Take away the suffering. Comfort me and relieve me of this. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me spiritually so I might trust you. That's not what we expect. But he does not see comfort or relief as his greatest need. I'm not saying he doesn't ask for comfort or relief. Certainly he does. We saw that in last week's passage. What I'm saying is that he knows his greatest need is to be revived in his trust in the Lord. So he asks for spiritual revival. We need to ask the Lord for spiritual revival, for him to put life in us. We need the Holy Spirit to refresh us and make us like our Lord, particularly in suffering. Second, his second prayer and lamentation was confession of sin. First, he asked the Lord to revive him spiritually. Then he confesses a sin. Look at verse 26. When I told of my ways, you answered me. In other words, his ways versus God's ways. You'll see that later when he says that he wants to look at verse 30, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. In other words, there was the ways that he walked in, which were sinful ways. And when I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes so that I walk in your ways and not my own. He's confessing his sin. I've declared my ways. I have stated clearly and openly the state of my heart. He confessed his sin with godly sincerity. And how did God respond? He answered him. The Lord heard. The Lord knows. He received the confession of sin and forgave him. The Lord always hears the penitent. Always. Charles Bridges, commentator, commented on the Lord's help in our suffering and sin. And here's what he said. We must mourn over the dullness that hinders us and diligently wait for the help we every moment need. Now catch this line. God keeps the grace in his own hands and gives it at his pleasure. Sovereign grace, when we are in difficulty, it is important that we confess all the sinful ways that we tend to handle that. We must trust that our Father has grace in his hands and that he gives it at his pleasure. One way I have sinned in suffering personally, is that I've demanded the Lord to give me my way in the midst of suffering. And I would be willing to wager everything I own that so has everyone else in this room. Give me my way in the midst of suffering. I don't want this trouble to continue. I will not rest in you until you deliver me from this. That is my sinful disposition to determine what is good in God's plans. There are other sinful responses. Someone might turn to alcohol or drugs, or pornography, or anger. And I mean sinful anger. There's an anger that is not sinful, but sinful anger. Shaking their fist at God. We tend to turn to anything but trusting Him. We tend to almost do anything but say, though He slay me, in Him will I trust. I need to confess that to Him. We wrongly consider our miserable circumstances to be 
our greatest misery, when it is actually our failure to trust the Lord in all our circumstances that is our true misery. It is that true misery, the misery we should just call unbelief, that the Lord has saved us from in Christ. Please don't miss that. It's paramount that we remember he hears us and forgives us in Christ. The Lord hears the prayers of the penitent and he forgives us. He does so because we have an advocate when we sin, our Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is sufficient payment for all your sins and misery. And so we confess our sin to him and trust him for his forgiveness. So first in lamentation, we pray that God would revive us. Second, we confess our sins and trust his forgiveness. And third, his third prayer in lamentation was asking for godly wisdom. Look at verses 26 and 27. When I told you of my ways, you answered me. Now notice here he's going to turn for godly wisdom. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts as opposed to my ways. Make me understand your ways, the way of your precepts. He wants to know God's word. He wants to understand how to apply that word in every circumstance. It's like saying, I want to understand your law and how I keep it in all the practicalities of my day-to-day life. I will never know it as I ought just by reading it. I need your spirit to illumine my mind so I know how to keep it day by day. Know what the psalmist's greatest fear is. His greatest fear is not his circumstances. His greatest fear is his own sin and unfaithfulness. He fears nothing more than being unfaithful and ungodly. I want to be godly, and what I fear most is not that God will leave me in the suffering, but that I will respond sinfully. That's what you hear the psalmist saying. That's my great fear. Not that God leaves me in the suffering, but that I sin against him in the midst of it. This desiring of godliness follows on quite appropriately from his confession of sin and the receiving of mercy and forgiveness, doesn't it? He's confessed his sin. God has been merciful to him. And now he has a desire for godliness. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher of the 19th century, put it this way. Mercy, which pardons transgression, sets us longing for grace, which prevents transgression. Hear that? The mercy which pardons our transgression sets us longing for the grace which prevents our transgression. But that desire to know God's word is grounded in his desire to know and meditate upon the whole scope of God's work. He doesn't just want to memorize a few Bible verses or have some sort of cute bumper sticker theology with little sayings that he makes, you know, that he thinks are clever. He wants to know the Lord in all his words and works. To be wise is to know the Lord in all his words and works. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look at Psalm 119, verse 27, the second part of verse 27. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. He wants to meditate on God's wondrous works. What are his wondrous works? And why meditate on them in the midst of suffering? Well, let's name God's three wondrous works. You're going to say, there's only three? These are the three categories. God created all things. And he created them good. So I look at God's work of creation. It's order. It's beauty. And I think, surely God is good. I need to meditate on the fact that he's good. I'm in awe of him. I wonder at his marvelous work. Second is work of providence. I look around at the ways in which God has carried his people forth, breath by breath, heartbeat by heartbeat. 
across the span of human history, and I see God's good work, taking the gospel from this little place in the Middle East all across the earth to me, which I'll move to in a second. I see God's wondrous works in the way he does things like caring for the birds of the air. I just sit outside and contemplate, look at that bird. It doesn't store up in barns and gather, yet my father cares for it. How much more will he care for me, his child? See, I consider his wondrous works in creation. I consider his wondrous works in providence. I consider his wondrous works, above all, in redemption. From the moment we sinned, God's first word was a curse upon the serpent, which was good news for us. His first word in the face of our sin was to curse the serpent with a promise that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent and save his people. It was a word of grace. And we see the unfolding of that promise throughout the history of the Old Testament and with the coming of Jesus Christ, his own son, who lived in our place and kept the law in every way we failed to, who paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, who rose from the dead, who ascended to heaven, who sits presently ruling over heaven and earth and who sent His Spirit that we might be saved. And I just meditate on that. I meditate on His work in creation, providence, and in redemption, and I marvel at Him. And I say, while I may not see in my present circumstances that you are good, I can see in all that you created, in all that you do, and in your saving power in Christ Jesus, you are good. You are good. This word meditate can also be translated, by the way, talk or speak. It's not just that he wants grace to meditate upon God's works. It's that he wants grace to speak of God's gracious work to others. He wants to sing and proclaim God's great works. So he wants God to revive him. He confesses his sin. He desires to rejoice in godly wisdom. And fourth prayer in lamentation was asking for God's grace to strengthen him. Look at verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. I am melting under the weight of my own discouragement. I'm melting under the weight of my own depression and sin. I am downcast. I need your grace. I have nothing to bind me up other than the power of your word. That's all I have. We can do nothing apart from God's strength. He wants God to carry him along. He's one who believes what we hear in Isaiah 40 and verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That isn't talking about your sports team winning. That's talking about walking as a pilgrim in this world in sin and misery and being carried all the way home by the Lord. His fifth prayer in lamentation is repentance. Look at Psalm 119 verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. See, he wants to repent. Keep me from lying. That's what he's saying. When he says, put false ways from me, keep me from lying. Keep me from unfaithfulness. Graciously teach me your law. Write it on my heart. Make it my delight. Cause me to abhor all my unrighteous ways and to delight in your truth. He wants God to help him put away false ways, to help him put away ungodliness. He wants God to graciously teach him his law. He knows he needs the Lord. Now, what sinful, lying, unfaithful ways did he want to stay far from? Law-breaking, doctrinal error, idolatry, 
self-righteousness, hypocrisy, religious formalism. We could go on. Keep me far from that. He wants to know God and himself truly. I've said this to you guys before. You've heard me say this for years here. No one lies to you better than you do. You don't even know you're lying to you. And how do we learn the truth? We need the mirror of God's word, the mirror of God's law. You know what this looks like in life. I'm closing in on 50. I still imagine myself being a particular age and looking a particular way. And then I walk into the bathroom and see the mirror. And I learn the truth. And I'm not generally pleased with that. But here's the issue. We often think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Then we see God's law. And we need the Spirit to take what we see in the mirror of the law and drive it deep into our hearts and minds. Our hearts and minds will either be filled with God's law or the world's lies. So this is a grace-filled lamentation. His prayer is to ask the Lord to revive him, to confess his sins and unfaithfulness, and ask the Lord to make him wise and ungodly so that he might meditate upon and speak of the Lord's works. He is melting under the power of sorrow, and he needs the Lord to strengthen him. He needs the Lord to strengthen him and cause him to repent of all false ways. So first, we need grace for lamentation to put off sin. That's what we see in these prayers. Second, we need grace for lamentation to put on godliness. This point will come fairly quickly all at once. Look at Psalm 119, verse 30. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Notice these three active verbs at the beginning of every verse. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I cling to your testimonies. I will run in the way of your commandments. There's a major transition here from clinging to the dust to clinging to your testimonies. Transition from confessing unfaithful ways in verse 26 to choosing the way of faithfulness. A major transition from clinging to the dust to running in the way of your commandments. See, I'm under the heaviness of my own sin, verse 28, and now I'm running in the way. You guys see the massive shift here? I can't get up. I'm laying here in sorrow. The weight is heavy upon me. I cling to the dust. My ways have been unfaithful. Now it transitions. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I cling to your testimonies. I will run in the way of your commandments. This is the outcome of godly lament, of godly sorrow. We don't just put off our sin and unfaithfulness. We put on faithfulness and godliness. Your rules are before my eyes. I know them and I believe them. I cling to your promises as my only hope. I believe you and that you will not put your servant to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart or when you set my heart free is another way to translate that. There will be no reluctance. I will leap with joy like a calf from the stall. See, we ought to pray with Matthew Henry, by thy providence, put life into my affairs. By thy grace, put life into my affections. Cure me of my spiritual deadness and make me lively in my devotion. This is what our psalmist wants above all. He wants grace for godliness. He does not supremely desire new circumstances, though I'm sure he wants those. He wants most to be made increasingly alive spiritually. 
to honor the Lord. He wants the Lord to set his heart and his mind on his word and his works so that he desires the Lord above all else. Sovereign grace, we will often be unaware of what the Lord is doing. We may be confused and crushed under the weight of our own trials and loss. We may often wonder in the midst of it if God is really good, if God is really for us, if God really loves us. And the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the answer to that question. Is God good and seeking my good? Look to the cross of Christ. Is God for me? Look to the cross of Christ. Does God really love me? Look to the cross of Christ. What then shall we say to these things, Paul asks after summing up the gospel? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would be a people who in the midst of sorrow and lament meditate on your wondrous works, creation and providence, and supremely upon the work that you've done in our redemption in Christ. Father, may we be enlivened spiritually. May we continually confess our ungodly ways. Cause us to walk in wisdom, in the fear of the Lord. Cause us to run in your commandments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.